Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my (laughs) incomparable co-host, Ellen McGirt. Bam, Ellen, how are you? I, I have a big, I have a question for you when you tell me how you are. I am great. I am back to full health and I'm happy to be back on the job. And what's your question? I'm dying to know. My question is, do you know what the PayPal mafia is? Oh, you know, I do. And I feel a little bad about it because, Alan, I know that you only know me as a loyal Fortune employee, but for a brief period of time, maybe six, seven years, I did work for a competitor magazine and I did get a chance to meet and interview almost all of the PayPal mafia. Wow. But Fortune, I believe, and we can ask our guests this, I believe the PayPal Mafia was a phrase that not everyone loved that came out of a Fortune cover story. And it's the founders of PayPal who then went on to create many other businesses. It includes Elon Musk. It includes Reid Hoffman. It includes Peter Thiel. And it includes our guest, Max Levchin. (laughs) Max, welcome to Leadership Next. Thank you for for a wonderful intro, and uh, that is correct. <laughs> for better, for better Ellen, and worse. I, Ellen, I don't know <laughs> if he meant that. <laughs> it was, you know, I'm thinking about, I mean, the, the, the PayPal Mafia cover was an iconic moment in business. You scooped everyone, as you often do. But you were all very different from each other. I mean, Alan, you just named sort of a, a, a gallery of personalities, and it was extraordinary how well PayPal did and all of your varied inputs and influences and how interesting careers you've all had outside of it once you parted company. So I, I think it's maybe mafia is not the right the right framing for it, but it was <laughs> certainly an interesting moment. Max, what do you think? Uh, it was definitely uh, zeitgeisty, if that's uh, an appropriate adjective. Um, I, we don't love the mafia term, just for the record. I think most of the PayPal crew thinks of ourselves as a most of us are still really good friends. Uh, even the occasional rivals maintain really good friendships. And so we, uh, we all enjoy each other's company. Do not think of ourselves as organized crime. So uh, pay, <laughs> PayPal okay, group, that's it. PayPal. That will be the last reference to organized crime in this podcast. <laughs> uh, so let's dive into what you're doing now, Max. Affirm. Let's just start with what you were trying to do when you founded Affirm. Sure. I was born in Ukraine and came to the U.S. as a teenager and before paypal before before university before everything or really as i started my sort of american life i found out the hard way that if you don't have a credit record you don't exist and i sort of got the sort of a canonical on-campus credit card promptly ruined my credit rating like all the things you're (laughs) supposed to do is you know in, in in large air quotes And that stayed with me both uh, metaphorically and practically. The week PayPal went public, I was suddenly independently wealthy and tried to buy a new car, which would have been my first new car, only to find out that my credit rating was so poor Mm. that the dealer who had read the article about PayPal going public and recognized my name said, you know, no matter how great it is to be you, you're going to pay cash because your (laughs) your credit score is awful. And, uh, you know, right, right in front of my then girlfriend, now wife. Uh, did, oh, she did, stayed do, with you through that. Amazing. She, well, she, she met me before most of it all began. And so I think she already knew I was, uh, I was a complicated man when it comes to credit anyway. And so, uh, so the, the punchline is that I filed it under the sort of a, hmm, it's interesting 
like the, the reality does not correspond to credit scores very well, does it? And because the PayPal crew keeps in touch, I spent a lot of time actually hanging out with one of my earliest PayPal co-conspirators whose name doesn't frequently get mentioned, but he's another one of these just absolutely brilliant people that I met uh, as early as high school named Nathan Gettings. He went on to co-found Palantir, mm. just a really, really, really high IQ person. And he and I worked on fraud and credit underwriting at PayPal. And he and I were having lunch, as we did a lot back in those days. And he posed the question, why hadn't PayPal tried to build the better credit score? And the memory of being declined for this silly car purchase, having my card, one of the sort of a, it's interesting, but one of the burnt in my memory moments in my life was I turned 35 or 36 and went to a really fancy dinner that I tried to pay for with my credit card. And one of my friends conspired to have the uh, wait person pretend that the card was declined. No. Okay. And okay. He, he meant no harm. He, he thought oh. it was kind of a cool little <laughs> joke. And I remember, I remember turning purple with oh, embarrassment because I was absolutely Lord. sure it was right. And uh, in that moment, I said, Nathan, you're right. Like we should have fixed the bleep credit score. Yeah. And the origin story of a firm starts there. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do something about this. So you started a firm to do that, but what's happened in recent years is you've really latched on to what became something of a craze, which is the buy now, pay later movement. How did you get from credit scores to buy now, pay later? So sure enough, we built a credit score. Nathan is brilliant. So he helped me build a pretty good credit score. And we went around the proverbial uh, high street offering it to various banks and other people that do lending. And every one of them told us, if you are so smart, why don't you lend your own money? And at some point, we sort of said, you know what? You're right. We're going to have to prove that our credit underwriting is better than what's out there. So we then sat down and said, well, neither one of us knows anything about marketing. So we're not really going to go out there and stand in a street corner or the proverbial street corner and offer people loans. But we have to find demand from borrowers somehow. And I had long sort of been fascinated by this thing called Bill Me Later, which, you know, mm -hmm. before BNPL had a name and an acronym and was the hot craze, it was a really interesting company called Bill Me Later that was acquired by PayPal, of all things, <laughs> in sort of the heat of the 2008 financial collapse. But the idea was pretty similar. It was this notion that you borrow money specifically for the purchase. And that, of course, was mimicking long existent idea of what's called point of sale issued credit card, when you would walk into a Macy's or a department store of some kind, they would say, hey, if you want 10% off your cart or your dress or your, your, your slacks, you can get this credit card with a store name on it and we'll give you a special discount. And when you come back, you'll use this card again and you know, we'll, we'll create loyalty that way. And I started that that's probably a really good hack because then we wouldn't have to market, the merchants would market the product for us. Mm -hmm. We would just deal with the credit underwriting and, and facilitating the loan. The more I looked into, so first Bill Me Later was long, no more, it became PayPal credit, but the point of sale issued credit cards were still very much a thing. It turned out to be the fastest growing segment of credit cards. Hmm. The more I looked into that segment, the more I realized that it was the schlockiest product, and that's a technical term, ever offered <laughs> yeah. to the yeah, human Yeah, define schlocky. Every... <laughs> define schlocky. I think I know what you mean, but go ahead. You, you tell us why it was uh, bad. So a great sort of rule of thumb is if it says in giant print, free or 0%, <laughs> you'll find an asterisk immediately after and in yeah. very small print, it says, but if you don't make exactly the right number of pennies and dollars and exactly the right schedule, 
for the following 96 months. Yeah. If on the last day of the last hour, you're a penny short, all the interest that could have compounded going back six years, yeah. whatever, will have been due. And so it, it's known technically as a deferred interest loan or deferred interest line of credit. Right. And in the very small print, which is their business model, it says that we'll give it to you for free, no interest at all. However, if any of the many rules gets breached, all the interest is due and it floods back from the very beginning, from, from the purchase time. And that is how that particular industry makes money. And so from, hey, I have a cool marketing hack to this is an enragingly bad product for consumers. We built what became BNPL, which is in a firm's case, not just no deferred interest, which is true evil in, in my professional opinion, but also no late fees, no compounding interest, interest that's actually fixed so consumers know exactly how many dollars and cents they will ever owe us. And so we really built the company around this idea that we will do the right thing for the consumer. And especially if they are down on their luck, we will not make money from it. We will actually help them deal with their financial difficulties. And that's really served us very well. And in many ways, certainly, uh, we're not the only company that uh, built this buy now, pay later, crazy as you put it, but I'd like to believe that we ushered the change of mm -hmm. financial services that really are for the people as opposed to against them, if you will. The work that you're describing has the potential to impact all kinds of people who have been underserved by the banking industry in all ways that we know, including payday lenders and just the, the, the schlocky mechanics that you just described. You also described a person like yourself who is vulnerable to these kinds of things. How else have you learned to get to know the different kinds of customers who are vulnerable? I say that as someone who doesn't get the chance to profile really smart technology leaders and founders so much anymore, but I spend a lot of time thinking about the racial wealth gap. I spend a lot of time thinking about inclusion and exclusion by design. How have you learned to get to know the various subsets of individuals who have been harmed by the financial services industry? A couple of things. Um, so there's no substitute for talking to the people. So in yeah. the earliest days and now, it's an advice for every CEO and every product-minded CEO, which I certainly count myself among, get on the phone and answer uh, customer service calls. And in the world of lending, it's a lot more personal, if you will, than, you know, my widget doesn't work. What are you going to do about it? It's the, I had to declare a personal bankruptcy and I still owe you money. Yeah. And the only answer, of course, is go deal with that. That's it. We're going to step very far out of your life and we hope that we're, we're going to uh, we're going to see you come back from the financial brink that you find yourself in. Fortunately, it's not a super common thing in our world, but things like, hey, I lost my job. I used to do this basically to just give myself a boost emotionally back in the day. Not as much these days, but I would listen in the calls where somebody would call in and who didn't understand that we did not have late fees. Wow. And so the conversation basically always goes like this, like, hey, so I'm a couple of days behind. It was totally not my fault. My dog gave my homework. Here's the thing. I've got. I've already made my payment. Can I talk to you about the late fee that you guys charge? Because I want to. You know, maybe I can do something about that. I'm like, oh, we don't charge late fees. Uh, what? What? Like, we don't charge late fees. So, uh, but, but, but we don't charge late fees. Like, oh my God, you guys are amazing. I'll tell all my friends <laughs> every time I hear that. I'll be like, oh, great. This this is so awesome. So I, I used to do that a lot, and not all the conversations are quite that cheerful. And you you learn a lot about people's lives and. During COVID, as the COVID pandemic began, I tried to invest a lot of time understanding 
where people are losing their jobs and what did it look like and did they have savings? How were they behaving? And that, so anyway, so I spent a lot of time doing that and still do. One other thing I did, which was really educational and um, I think at the time vaguely controversial, but uh, maybe not so much anymore. In 2015, I think, I joined the advisory board of Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Hmm. And that's the uh, all feared, all important CFPB. Yeah. And it was fascinating because, I mean, fascinating in the sense that you get to be in the room where debates rage about sort of what's good and what's bad for consumers, not, not just by practitioners in the industry, but also the regulators. And you get a lot of really interesting points of view that way. And they were unbelievably willing to share how they think about regulating the industries that they're responsible for regulating and how they think about bad actors and good actors. I had a wonderful conversation with a lawyer there that I basically repeated the, no, we really don't charge late fees. <laughs> she was sort of like, really? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's one of one. I was like, yeah. Okay. But uh, so that, that was very educational. The most interesting part of the CFPB experience was you get to encounter consumer advocacy groups that represent all sorts of folks from all sorts yeah. of walks of life. Everything from indigenous people to folks that were affected by a hurricane. So you, you just get these really sometimes devastating perspectives from people yeah. that you would not have related to otherwise. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US and the sponsor of this podcast for all three of its seasons. Thank you for that, Joe. Pleasure to be here, Alan. Joe, business is facing so many challenges these days. The continued pandemic, the battle for talent, supply chain problems, rising inflation, and now on top of all of that, war in Europe. How are companies responding to all this disruption? Alan, you're seeing a remarkable level of optimism in the face of so many varied challenges challenges. And by and large, I'd attribute that to a recognition that this is just the new normal, the constant curveballs that will be thrown at us. But at the same time, given how successfully so many of these organizations have navigated through these things over the past couple of years, a growing confidence that we'll be able to continue to navigate the issues that get thrown at us and grow our businesses. But to do that, we are absolutely seeing a new brand of leadership emerge grounded in resilience, in agility, in a learning mindset. These are the most important leadership attributes and in an environment where we should just expect that change and disruption are going to be at a consistently high level of intensity. The problems aren't going away, Joe, right? <laughs> that you have to manage through them. I had a CEO say to me recently that if you put together a list of the top 20 risks one week, something big's gonna hit the next week and it probably isn't even on that list. And that's just a reflection of the number of different phenomena in the world right now and the level of complexity that businesses are managing through. Joe, thank you. Alan, it's a real pleasure. So, Max, let's talk about the roller coaster ride you've been on for the last two years. A firm successfully did an IPO in January of 2021. Very good timing on your part. Congratulations. Uh, you raised over a billion dollars. The thing popped. It kind of doubled in value the first day. You were on a great ride. It was a craze, as you said, very popular. And then this year, you've seen almost a 90% decline in your stock price and market value. So what's going on there? I think I'm in pretty good company. If you look at the uh, cohort of companies that went public right around the time we did, or 
the rest of the tech market or the rest of the market these days. You, I don't know. Ninety percent may put you in a, a at the head of the pack. Uh, I think I can probably name a few more that are <laughs> right there. Uh, Feel free, right there with me in my own in my own segment. Uh, no, no, no need to. Uh, it's not exactly something that any any CEO is is excited about. Good news is that ultimately. I care about the stock price. I think it's it's a very important thing for for me to let my shareholders know should they be listening. That said, I care about it, and I would like to be graded in the increments of you know we're not in Soviet Union anymore. But the five year plan makes a lot of sense if you're trying to build something for a long time. The daily fluctuations of AFRM would just make one's stomach get into uh, one's throat and back just because it's such a volatile stock and it's such a volatile time in the market, and so. So far as I can, I try to look at our results as a company and expect the stock price to catch up to them. If you look at the results that we've posted, we've done extraordinarily well as a company between the uh, day of our IPO and now every metric that we publish has improved dramatically. And so, you know, 90% down today, perhaps up or down tomorrow, doesn't really change what we're building and how we're going about building it. You know, we've made a public commitment to the markets that we will get profitable in uh, roughly uh, you know, at, at the beginning of the next fiscal year. And that's the plan. That, that's what we'll execute yeah. on. Yeah. Well, let, but let's stick with that for a second, because part of what the market seems to be saying, obviously, Mr. Market is not always right. But what <laughs> the market seems to be saying is, yeah, this was a popular thing and it was good for the consumers and you were growing like mad. But in an era of sharply higher interest rates, it's not at all clear that you can make money. So why is the market wrong? Why, why is its perception of your future different from yours? Um, again, I think the market will be proven wrong when we declare profitability. And I intend to do so on the schedule that we promised. So I think that's a, the best way I can prove the market wrong is by simply saying, all right, see, I made a promise to do X and that's what we did and that's what we'll keep doing. Uh, structurally, the reason we can make money is the unit economics of a firm, not necessarily true for the rest of the industry, but for us, it has been true for a very long time. Every transaction, every loan we underwrite has positive unit economics, which means that at the end of as, you know, including things like losses for credit and all the other things and costs, et cetera, et cetera. We call it RLTC, revenue less transaction cost, but you can call it contribution margin or any other sort of a margin metric. Our margins are, are strongly positive. That means that so long as we keep growing, so long as we make more transactions happen and people are still buying quite a number of things and the firm is still growing a lot faster than the industry around us is, we will eventually make money because every transaction does create a positive margin. So, so long as we're prudent at managing risk, obviously there's a, there's a way to, go, to get it wrong. For example, if we are not tracking risk very carefully, you can start making negative transactions. That doesn't bode well for lenders. Right. You can also do lots of other irresponsible things, but we have run this company for 11 years in a very, very responsible way. And for a long time, by the way, the narrative two years ago, three years ago, when we were competing in the world of zero interest rates and uh, you know, irresponsible spending by our competitors, to put it bluntly, the conversation wasn't, can you make money? It was, are you guys growing as quickly as possible? And who cares about the fact that you're promising? <laughs> old, we, we, we kept on saying exactly the same thing we did then. The good old days. I, we don't I, care if you make money. I, I don't think they're good old days at all. I don't believe in building <laughs> irresponsible businesses. I think the idea of a business yeah. is to create profit in a responsible way and ideally be 
driver of responsible financial behavior for all of our economic stakeholders, consumers, merchants, shareholders. And so, so we've always done exactly the same thing, except today, the rest of the competition is finding out that it's really hard to make profitable transactions if you're not used to it. And we're not, we've always have done that. Huh. Now that leads me to, um, I guess maybe it's probably a two-part question, but a question about how you think about innovation. Clearly you're mission-driven, you've got purpose at the center of what you're doing, and you've set some very clear stakes in the ground around how you're going to behave with consumers. And I'm sure that's inspiring for your employees. So I'm curious, as you look out on the risk assessment dashboard, in the, like on some of the big picture issues, got global inflation, food insecurity, the smoldering crises of war, refugees, and climate change, and you think about what's possible, how do you create an organization that thinks about inventing what's next, given the purpose that's at the core and the kinds of problems that we have in the world? That's a... I could spend an hour just opining uh, right? on, on all these things. <laughs> so it is, it is a privilege, but also a great blessing to lead a company with a mission at the center. I think when you know, in, in the in the good old days, sense, uh, you know, you go public and everything looks peaches and cream. Maybe people don't care so much why they're doing what they're doing because it's rewarding and fun and everything's okay. When you're looking at a super high volatility stock market and read the news as we do with the interest rates going up and inflation raging and the war in my hometown and on and on and on, it's a lot easier to motivate yourself when you realize what you're doing actually helps real people in a way that's not just profitable, but also has a ton of purpose behind it. And so that, yep. that has been a great backbone with which I get to lead the company, my management team gets to uh, gets to do the same. The way we try to innovate, again, nothing is better for innovators than constraints. If you tell yourself, here's a blank sheet of paper, at least in my case, a lot of times you don't know where to start. There's so much opportunity, you just kind of sort of, well, you know, it's, it's beautiful without anything on it, maybe I'll wait. If you tell yourself, no, we will never charge late fees. No, we will never touch deferred interest with a 10-foot pole because it is truly terrible. And all these things that we said, these are not good for consumers. These are bad things that we're going to avoid them. And yet people still need to buy things. And in the world of today, they actually need our help more than ever. Inflation strips away your ability to buy the things you need. And if it's a suit to look good in your next job interview as U.S. rolls back from full employment, that's going to be a relevant thing. If you're not employed and you still need to look presentable for that interview, the only way you're going to pay for it is with a pay over time scheme of some kind. And if I can help you not fall into the trap that is revolving credit, e.g. credit cards, that's part of the mission. So I think these constraints actually drive us to invent new things. By the way, the other constriction that we have are the merchants. They are just as important mm -hmm. to us. And our job there is to help them bring what's on their shelves into the hands of the willing buyer. We create more velocity of, of sales for them. And again, we're doing it in a responsible way where they know the consumer isn't going to wake up on work and say, oh my God, I bought that suit at place X and boy, do I feel screwed because the interest has now overrun my life. And so we are accretive to the brand of the merchant because we treat their, our shared consumer rights and we help consumers stay on the right side of their financial decisions. There's always more ideas. The, the thing about payments and, and credit and just financial services we're not just trying to help you buy things. Fundamentally, the mission of a firm expressed as a product strategy is we're helping your money go further. Like that, yeah. That's really what we're trying to do.
Yeah. And so that's the question I want to ask. Clearly a strong sense of purpose behind the firm. If it's such a good idea, and I certainly think it's a good idea, you know, be totally transparent. We're not going to have deferred interest. We're not going to have hidden fees. We're not going to have late fees. If it's such a good idea, why aren't you driving all the credit cards out of the market? I'm making a dent, and uh, just so we're clear, I'm trying. Like this, this, this isn't uh, this isn't a great secret. We, <laughs> That's the ten-year plan, are, Alan. That's the ten-year plan. That's the ten-year plan. I think it's probably uh, if, if we're honest here, maybe it's like a thirty-year plan. But I intend to uh, yeah. I intend to make good on it. But uh, I think we are doing our best to provide a viable alternative. And um, just to use our super brief history of a firm's product roadmap. So we started with this idea that you're going to buy a bicycle, you're going to buy a couch, things that are expensive, sort of looking back at the 20-year-old Max with a, what I need is credit card thing for, oh, wait, I have a dorm room and it's empty. And so we built what we call an installment payment planner. You know, it, it's, it's got a lot of names now, but uh, so they pay over time over many, many months, you know, from six to, uh, to 36 to replace credit cards for considered purchases, bicycles and couches. And then we realized that this actually works for even $200 things and $150 things. So more like a nice presentable dress or you know a, a suit. And so that's what's now colloquially known as BNPL, the paid for sort of over six weeks. And then we realized that there's still a lot of other things you buy that does not fit into either of those two buckets. And we launched, which just really started rolling it out, our answer to a debit card. So we're calling it debit plus. You can also think of it as credit minus. It's basically a credit card minus delayed fees, minus deferred interest, minus all the schlock. And so we are absolutely chasing the uh, credit card volume, which is on the order of a trillion dollars. So there's, there's, a, there's a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to have you back in 30 years to talk about that. Um, but Ellen, we should talk a little bit about what's happening in Ukraine as, as you know, th this is your home country. H how do you make sense of this moment in world history? I don't know if I can. I don't, I don't know if mm. I can. I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm no geopolitician. So I, I read the same newspapers all of us do. And I listen to the the commentators and absorb the knowledge, but um, I don't think I have much to add to the conversation around sort of where it came from and, you know, which side of the uh, responsibility gets us placed where the humanitarian crisis is very real and hits me perhaps slightly more than the average animal because I have relatives in both the, uh, yeah. the places that the, we're, 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 there's no daily shooting and, and some where there are. There is. And so, um, so I think that's, that's probably the most honest answer. The whole thing is terrible. And uh, I hope it's peaceful eventually. We're so sorry to hear that. I, I did, just as a follow-up, I remember the last time I saw you many years ago, we were having a reporting lunch and you told me a story. Both our parents, your father and my mother, in their retirement had started writing poetry. And we both learned the hard way that when they shared their poetry, that they were not asking for actual feedback. They just wanted to hear that it was wonderful. And it was such <laughs> a delightful shared moment. And then you talked a little bit about your dad, who was a pretty big deal in Ukraine. And the story of your family's escape and your statelessness and the obviously the, the wonderful happy ending for you in the United States feels like it's playing out around the world, but particularly in that part of the world, in a very terrifying way. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience with the eye to giving us a little bit more insight 
into what it's like for other people now? Excellent memory. I have to uh, have to comment on that. Um, <laughs> I think since we last saw each other in person, my dad very sadly passed away. I know, uh, I I'm know. so sorry to hear that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but he he was a wonderful guy and uh, a gentleman and a gentleman, and uh, he he taught me a lot. The long and short of my experience is we got exceedingly lucky. I think the reality of Ukraine today, the uh, seven, almost eight million people that escaped, you know, I got nothing on them. Like we left the country by plane. The scariest part of my journey out was a really rough border guard who told us in no uncertain terms that we're traitors and we'll never be allowed back and all sorts of uh, scary sounding things took away my floppy disks, which had my entire software collection on them. But that, mm. that's really, you know, other, other than the sense of uh, home, we lost very little else. I think people who are running away from the war today are literally traveling with a suitcase and a half and, uh, you know, a kid on their shoulder. And so that, that's, that's a little bit different. And I feel enormous gratitude for the U.S. receiving us, but also extraordinary sense of luck. I fast forward 30 years and you have what do you have today. Max Levchen, from the days of PayPal, we won't use the M word, through Yelp, <laughs> Evernote, Yahoo, the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, yeah. and and now to Affirm. You've had just an, an amazing career, and you have a huge ambition for the next 30 years, and we are going to mark our calendars and, and have you back to talk about yes, the end of credit are. cards when that period is over. But thank you so much for spending the time with Ellen and me on Leadership Next. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, I really appreciate the nice words about Ukraine. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell, executive producer, Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.